bless as we study the book of Nehemiah right now for a bit, that you would help it to be profitable, practical to our lives, and insightful, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's head over to chapter 7. Let's set the scene. Nehemiah's uh, situation, if you haven't been with us, Nehemiah is an Old Testament character. He is famous because Israel had been a nation growing. They had disobeyed God. God punished them by letting them go into captivity. They're, uh, they're both the, the northern tribes, the southern tribes are taken into captivity. And so finally, Israel, Jerusalem is destroyed in that date that we give you, 586. A number of years later, they're allowed to go back into the land of Israel. Now they're kept out for a total of 70 years because for roughly 490 years they haven't been observing this idea of letting the land rest every so many years. And so they're kept out for that exact period of time. They get back into the land and when they get back in they start rebuilding. They build the temple under Zerubbabel, prophet Haggai. They get the temple rebuilt, and then another prophet comes and wants to help them to rebuild the city. His name is Ezra. When Ezra comes, then they start rebuilding, but they're stopped because some of the people, neighboring villages, send letters to the emperor saying that these people are planning a revolution if you let them continue to build. So they're told no more building. Nehemiah, 12 years later, comes up and says, and he's working for the king. He's close to the king, says, can I go back? I'll keep an eye on things. You trust me. Can I go back and start rebuilding the city. He's allowed to do that. And so the chapter 2 and following, he goes back, he gets the people starting to work. The people, some of those who are involved, chapter 3 are listed, chapter 4 and 5, they get the work going, they have some opposition. He gets real personal against Nehemiah in chapter 6, but they end up building the, the walls. They get them done. Now when they get the walls done, we, this is where we were last week, in chapter 7, and I want to revisit it just for a second. In uh, chapter 7, they get the walls done, and now they have to figure out what are we going to do. Look at the end of chapter, right before the beginning of chapter 7, chapter 6, verse 15. The walls were finished. He gives the day. It's 52 days. And so now they have some concerns. The concerns that they have are what are we going to do? And we mentioned this last week. One of the first concerns in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, is the city needs to be protected. They have the walls, but they don't have the people to protect it. They uh, need to make sure that they have a security system. So we mentioned this last week. What he does is he says, okay, what I need to do is have certain guards. Chapter 11 gives us um, the number that he, he appoints. But he, uh, he also appoints his brother, the security chief, to be there to say, okay, Hananiah, you and, you and another fellow by the name of Hananiah, you're going to be the security guides. You're going to be in charge of it. And so then he also says the gates aren't going to be open all the time. We have to have a system here until we get the right people. So they're securing the city. Then the next issue is in verse 4, if you look at it, the city is large. There's not homes. They have, the, they have the walls, but they don't have the population. They don't have the residents. And so that's going to be another issue that he's going to start dealing with. And the primary concern he has is the, the number of residents or the type of residents he needs some to work the temple. That's their big draw. And that, that's their big thing. And so he needs to determine, okay, here we are. We're in the city. We need to have people. But the first people that we need to make sure are here are priests so they can operate and run the temple. And so we've got to figure out which priests who are here are able and eligible. It's been a number of years that some 
some of these priests have been there. It's been over 100 years that some of their families have been there. And what he needs to find out is which one of these priests really are legitimate priests and descendants. So what happens in chapter 7 is he has to figure out which ones should live there, which ones should go on the rotating basis, and he's got to deal with it. Before we go any further, let's make some observations. He understood that the walls built... But there's, that's only part of the task. You get the walls, you get something done. Now the big part is protecting what you've achieved, maintaining what you've achieved. Here, let me see if I can illustrate. We, um, we invest in missions. We helped out several churches already in different areas around the world. We give them money to be able to... Um, to purchase or to build, and we've done this on a number of occasions, that they can, do a, they can do a building program themselves, but they don't have the funds to do it because they're just scraping to get by. And so we invest, they get the building. One of the things we want to know is, if they build the building, if we invest in the building, do they have the funds wherewithal to maintain a building? Okay, can they protect the building? Will it will it be in their in their hands? Sometimes in some countries and some areas that um, the property changes hands just by virtue of occupation. Okay, if somebody moves in and what what did we used to call that in America? Squatters' rights? Okay, um, that happens in, in some of these different countries quite frequently. That it's the idea of, okay, if you settle in and you live there, and so we want to know, is can they protect it? Can they maintain it? And so that's part of those discussions before we invest. Nehemiah is going to be very practical. He's like, okay, we built the walls, but we need to know, okay, certain things need to be taken care of. In order to maintain, we've got to have a police force. In order to maintain, we've got to have people. We've got to be able to take care of these things. And so he appoints individuals, and one of those is family members. In our culture, in our situation, most of the time we react against family members getting positions because it looks like pure, simple nepotism. Okay, and does, is there abuses this way? Absolutely. But Hanani, who's appointed, is somebody different. If you remember from chapter 1, what did we learn about Hanani before? that indicates he has a real vested interest in the welfare of, of, the, of Jerusalem. Do you remember in chapter 1? Somebody might be saying, well, I can't hear it. Yeah, he's the one that went and made the trip, checked it out, came back and told Nehemiah. Now we read about him back again in Jerusalem. So this fellow's making travels. He's making efforts. He has a vested concern. And so the idea that he's a proven commodity to, to Nehemiah, that's important. And so Nehemiah appoints him to be head of security. So what happens is he's got him in charge. Okay, now we've got to work on populating the city. The issue is which people, as I already mentioned. And so to help them out and... I really struggle with this passage. Some of you can figure this out better. Um, in some of those, those scholars who talk about the passage, they talk about this listing, this registry, as being all from 100 years ago when the first group came. And there's a large number of the people that he's listing here are all the way back to that 100-year-ago first group. Others are saying, no, part of these names that are listed are contemporary to Nehemiah. And so, part of the confusion, I'll give you an idea. Go to chapter, chapter um, oh, I'm not going to catch it off the top of my head. Um, 
Yeah, we, we start talking about the number of people. It says, uh, go down to the end of the chapter. He's talking about their substances, verse 68 and following. And he talks about the number of the people and the amount of money that they give. And then it says in verse 73, it says, So the priests, Levites, porters, and singers, and the, some of the people, they dwelt in their cities, and the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in their cities. Okay, he's all of a sudden moved us up to where he's at in the seventh month. But the previous verses are debated. Is it his era, his time, or is he referring to the monies that were given to the temple when Zerubbabel came and built the temple? And so there's a difference in even the commentators and the, some of the scholars. They draw distinctions in some of the verses, and we're, it, it just is not totally clear. But some of it is a fact that uh, some of it is very clearly listing people who came 100 years ago. Why is he concerned of which priests came 100 years ago and finding out who they are? Why would that bother him 100 years later? Think it through from a Jewish perspective. They've got to prove family heritage. They've got to, sh- they've got to prove genealogical ties because what's been going on the last hundred years why people are living here? There's been a lot of intermarriage. And so he's got to clarify some of this as far as the residents in the city and who can serve. And so what happens here, let me just back up. He is giving us a list. Now, part of, part of um, most of, Nehemiah 7 is a list of some of the people who came back 100 years ago. Ezra also gave the same list in Ezra 2. Ezra comes years later after the first group, and he has a list as well. And uh, by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah work together in chapter 8. They're contemporaries. So here's the question that starts coming up, is as they, they, they list these things, and maybe this would be helpful to get, put it in perspective. They're, the first group that comes is under Zerubbabel. This is the prophet Haggai. When they come back, and um, they're going to come back, and it takes place right around that 536. It's the first group. And there's thousands of Jews that come back. Under Zerubbabel is the governor, if you would. And so the prophet is Haggai. They build in this way. They weep and cry. This is, this is Nehemiah 7. This is Ezra 2. This is a listing of those people and who are the main characters. Then there's a second group of large number of Jews that migrate back. It's under Ezra. That's in the book of Ezra. In the second half of the book of Ezra, they come. They're the ones who are trying to rebuild the city and they're stopped because of the false reports. Then you have another group that's led by Nehemiah Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes years later, and that's where we're into the book. Now, when you have these records that both Ezra and Nehemiah list who came at the very beginning, because they're both concerned about the same thing, having the good records. Here's what you've got that some of you, if you read your footnotes in your Bible, probably it's not going to be there, but if you grab commentaries, you're going to see this. You're going to see that Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 don't exactly agree in the numbers and in the listing of all the names. And so right away people jump on it and say, oh, what do we have in the Bible? We've got an error in the Bible which proves that the Bible is unreliable. It cannot, it's not God's word. And so there's big issues out of the chapter 2 and chapter 7. For you, it's not an issue. But again, you need to be able to give a reason to explain. And here's what, here's what some facts are. Most all the names, and there's only a handful of names that do not agree. It's not that they contradict, but one might have somebody's listing. For instance, um, uh, Ezra lists 12 leaders. Nehemiah lists 13. The 12 are the same, but Nehemiah adds another name. And therefore, that proves that the whole records are both unreliable. Okay, all that proves is 
Yeah, Nehemiah added somebody else. That's all it proves. It doesn't mean that the whole things in, you know, uh, are totally wrong. They are both recording events, one from 80 years before, because remember, Ezra went back earlier, and then from 100 years. There could be these reasons why there might be a minor discrepancy in numbers and in some of the names. Is it possible that when Ezra went back and Ezra started recording all this, that as they were there over the 20 years, they found out that there was another family that had come that hadn't been noted? Is that a possibility? That somebody got lost in the shuffle and only found out, you know, or here, does it ever happen that as you get to know people here, you find out, oh, they're related to so-and-so, and you didn't know that? And over a period of time, you get some more information. So that doesn't seem to be a real, real problem. The question that some of them have is there's discrepancy in numbers. In some places, the numbers expand big in Ezra for some of the clans and little in Nehemiah, or big in Nehemiah and little in Ezra for some family groups when they give totals. It could very easily be that in some of these family totals, they included women at time, Woman, women, however you said. Okay, they included the ladies and the kids, and the other one did not. Does that mean their numbers are wrong? No, it's just that they, who were they counting and who had the records? And um, it's, they start off with who left Israel and who ends up at Jerusalem. Could there have been people that saw the migration and they joined in after the migration was already taking place? And so the numbers that started and the numbers that end up in the other account could have variations. All I'm saying is that um, these numbers have good reasons why there could be some discrepancy because Nehemiah could, could have included the priests that are no longer able. There's a, 45, there's a number of 45 priests that are disqualified, and Ezra doesn't have that same number when he gives the same number of the priests. They differ by 45. And so those types of things put together, here's what we got. We've got that, and, and there's this fact. There's that we don't want to deny. Could there be that as people were recording, not Ezra and Nehemiah, but others who were giving the record that they built upon, could there have been the possibility that they could have, could have left off a one in front of a seven, and so one records seven and one records 17? Is that a possibility? That is, if they're looking up records and writing directly from records, that there could have been a copyist error. Okay, that's a possibility. Does that destroy the credibility of Scripture? No, not really, okay? If we understand that, they agree to a great degree with the, with the exact names given. I'm struggling with saying things. The differs, and here's, there's lots of books written about, it, but the final numbers, when they tally, tally together, are only 45 in difference. Okay, that's the final. Now, some of the groupings differ by greater numbers, but there's only 45, and that's the exact number of disqualified priests. Okay? And so people make a big issue out of, oh, they've got a big discrepancy of numbers. Well, when you're dealing with 50,000 people, and you're only off in a 20-year census by 45, um, the U.S. doesn't do this good in polling. Okay? Okay? In keeping records. And so... Um, so you have some of these things. And the differences absolutely, here's the point. The, di the difference in numbers, okay, don't indicate that the whole, st the whole story is unreliable. They don't. They, there's possible explanations. There is no effect to the story. There is no doctrine changed. No actions have changed. 
Just the statistical listings have changed. And by the way, let me throw this something out that's, that's really important. Semitic thinking, Semitic and Middle Eastern thinking back in that time, they weren't concerned like you and I are concerned about specific times and numbers. Okay, Is there a difference around the world even today about being clock conscientious? Okay, Americans, are we more clock conscientious or not clock conscientious? We're very clock oriented. Are we big on polls? The numbers from polls? Yes, politically, we're huge on that. Other areas of the world, could they care less? Okay, it's a difference. Are other countries at times more interested in social interaction than Americans are? Absolutely, absolutely, that's a truism. Different cultures have different emphases. The Semitic culture doesn't really care about stats and numbers like we do. We're big on stats and numbers, but in their culture, they're not, okay? They're more concerned that the event happened than who was there, what was there, how many were there. And so this, at times, they'll give numbers and they'll round up numbers. Here, I'll give you an illustration. 400 years ago, you know, you know, or they spent 400 years in bondage in Egypt. That's one statement. You find another scriptural statement that says they were 430 years in bondage. Which one's right? They're both right, aren't they? Have you ever rounded up numbers? Yes or no? Okay, and their, their concern is, and so in America, we, you know, hundreds of years later, we look back and say they should be as concerned about the specific numbers as we are. doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. And so it's not a big issue. But what we get out of this is the genealogical record of going back to Zerubbabel was important because it helped determine who has been here, who had the land holdings, who can serve as the temple. And again, right where we were last week. But I wanted to clarify that chapter 7, it confuses me, contemporary or historical account, and it's a blend of both. And so uh, Ezra and Nehemiah both end up in the same place. They end up talking about how much money was given to the temple. So in chapter 7, Ezra 2, the same thing. They give a listing of who can be in the priesthood, who's serving there, and then they end up talking about who, is, how much money is there. And the money was important because the, how do you operate the temple without money? Yes or no? Okay, let me rephrase this. Churches aren't supposed to ask for money because that's very greedy of churches. But the fact is, if there's no money... There, 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 is no, there is no meeting place. Okay, we can still meet. We would have the body. But we would have problems as outside, you know, what, you know, what are we going to, you know, equipment, salaries, different things like that. And so, um, they, so Ezra and Nehemiah are talking very practical. They're giving this information. As they give the information, what would you, what would you think would be the next thing on their mind? They're talking about the people that can, we've got the people now, and you know that little, little what's that little thing about, yeah, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, okay, here's the people, that little thing that we teach. What would be the first thing on their mind after they say, okay, we've got a listing of the people, we've got monies to operate, okay, now, now let's do something with it. 
Okay, let's, let's talk. Chapter 8 moves us into the first celebration. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? And so, so we, have a, we have a change then in chapter 8. Uh, in right in the middle of this, talking about, you know, let's, let's populate the city. All of a sudden, chapter 8 opens up, and they remember, oh, by the way, it's the seventh month. That means we have feast days. Oh, yeah, we got feast days. And, and we've got priests now. And we've got singers. And we've got the place to worship. So why won't we celebrate the feast? And so chapter 8, it's almost like an interlude in the middle of this whole thing of populating the city. He's going to all of a sudden shift chapter 8, 9, 10, talk about the celebration of the feast. And by the way, there's three of them. Three of them in this month. They're right on the, they're on the eve of three major Jewish feasts. And so it doesn't surprise me that he's talking about priests and money given and populating the city. And oh, by the way, let me tell you what happened at that next one in the middle of all this populating the city. Let me tell you what we did. We took a siesta from figuring out who's moving in and packing the boxes and moving people in the city and we celebrated the feast days. And then he'll pick up the story after the feast days and go, oh, by the way, now to finish out what was going on as far as moving people into the city. And so that's the flow of the book. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Keep in mind, now this is really important thought, that's contrary to you and me. We pride ourselves in America that we were a social melting pot. That's our history. Did the Jews want to be a social melting pot? Absolutely not. It's a different culture. They wanted what? Purity, blood purity. So that's different. So when you read in the book of Nehemiah, when you, you, you've got to come not from an American point of view. You've got to come from a, you know, put your sandals on, their sandals on, and realize they don't want intermarriage in their group. They don't want this, this you, know, um, you know, getting, let's, let's blend everybody. They don't want that. Not at all. And so that would affect the religious services. Nehemiah knows, according to the Old Testament law, there has to be blood purity. If it's tainted by intermarriage, okay, we've got to, we've got, this is the standard of the Old Testament. We're going to keep it. Whether you like it or not, because you live in 2017, and we live in this more idea of being eclectic, that's not the way they thought. Now, some people that he was working with wanted to be more eclectic, more blending. And he's saying, no, God, God's word did not say that for the Jews in that time period. By the way, does God change that to say in another ministry he wants eclectic? He wants blending. When does he change that? Church age. Nehemiah is not church age. Nehemiah is Old Testament temple Jewish type thing. You've got to keep that in mind as you go through these chapters. Nehemiah appreciated and respected those who contributed to the present when living in the past. I think this is important. Just a thought. Again, you, you know, I'm, just, I'm not trying to read too much into it, but I think you and I should be thankful for who contributed to our life spiritually in, in the past. You know, whether it be churches, whether it be individuals, and whether we agree with them totally, but thank God for people who invested in ministries that impacted your life. People who taught. Thank the Lord. There may have been a Sunday school teacher. They may have been a preacher. There may have been a church. There may have been some mission outreach. And today they may not be thriving, or today they may not be in the same spot position, but thank God they had an impact in your life. You know, there's, there's one guy that, there's several men, I look back in my life, but there's one fella that I really appreciate this fella. I could never work with him. 
We have totally different views on standards, his, which, and, and God bless them um, you know, for that. There's a church I've shared with you that, um, that if you join their church, you have to get rid of your TV, you can't go bowling, the ladies have to agree to wear dresses all the time. I don't agree with those personal standards. If I were to join his church and sign the statement, then I'd have to live that way. I choose not to. Okay, and so when he asked me to become uh, part of his pastoral team, it was no, we couldn't work together. I didn't mean that as I didn't appreciate him. I he was the first guy that invested any time in my life. I thank God for him. And when we go back to Minnesota, I try to see him regularly, and I try to drop him a note once a year to say thank you for your investment in my life. I don't agree with everything, but I thank God for his investment in my life. And I think that's that's uh, you know I thought that sometimes. We jump and say, well, unless they're totally in agreement with me all through my life, thank God for people who invested in your life. Just be grateful for it. Let me make something else. There's a story in this whole story. The righteous like Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, they can rebuild what has been lost and torn down. That's part of this story telling us is that what Israel had lost because of their disobedience, it can be recovered. It can be revived. But what it requires is time. It requires sacrifice. It requires somebody to pay the price. And God rebuilds his work and gets it going. They're, they're in history. In history, this is supposed to be a very important Sunday in, in church history. This is Reformation Week, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And there had been a period of time that a lot of, a lot of ministries went undercover because of the persecution. Could God bring those ministries out from undercover through the sacrifice of some individuals? And the answer is absolutely positively yes. And so we need to remember that, that we don't give up. We just continue to do what God says. Now, when we work and serve as God wants, we're not forgotten. Even Ezra and Nehemiah list a lot of those people under the leading of the Spirit of God that God keeps records. And we know that according to Hebrews 10, that God does not forget our contributions. We read our 6 verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to saints and do minister. God doesn't forget your efforts. They may be overlooked by others, but God doesn't overlook and God will not forget. And he doesn't do that with, with uh, Zerubbabel's contributions. People are important, though, forgotten by others. Now, here's one thought that several, and I think it's, I think it's an, illust- uh, an illustration more than anything else. The, the Israelites in, in Nehemiah 7, they had to prove their tie there's their blood heritage, their spiritual tie to the covenant. Okay, they had to prove that in order to live in Jerusalem. Okay, can you see a parallel in the illustration here? Do we have to prove a spiritual tie, a blood tie to Christ to live in the new Jerusalem? Absolutely, absolutely. That we need to be able, they were, they were the peoples of the ancient past. They were the covenant people, and they had to show that. You and I today need to be able to say, I have verification that I am tied to Jesus Christ, to the blood of Jesus Christ, which gives me my ticket, my reservation into the new Jerusalem. And so just as it was important to Nehemiah and the people of that day, it is important. We have a spiritual heritage that we can prove that we've been born again. Now, what happens? Chapter 8. Chapter 8 is just what we said. They've been talking about repopulating, especially the priests, and getting the temple up and running, and, and donations made to it. And then, all of a sudden, it dawns on them, hey, we've got to do something that is really important. Let's pause for a second. Let's do a, ga- a game, okay? Let's talk about learning to prioritize. 
Okay, you're in a boat, your boat has sunk out on the Atlantic, you're in a rubber raft now, and you've got a kit. In this kit are a number of items, okay? Just think through these number of items for a couple minutes and give me what the Coast Guard would say to you, this is who provides this, what are the most important items in this kit that you do not want to lose, the most important items that are there, and why? You can, you can banter for, I'll give you about a minute to think about it. Give, list out what you would consider the top five out of these, I think there's 15. What are the top five most important items? I'll give you a few seconds to just think about it. You can talk about it and give your reasons why to one another. And then, we'll, then we'll compare notes. This is not my test. This is a Coast Guard test that's given to boaters at times. <laughs> Prioritizing what's important. Got your top few figured out? Bottle of rum. Does the bottle of rum have any value? What? Antiseptic. It's an antiseptic. Not, not, to, not to knock yourself out to forget your pain. Okay. But it, <laughs> it can. But that's not why the Coast Guard would say it's an important item. They would say it's because of being the antiseptic. Mm-hmm. What would you put down for number one? The plastic sheet. Why would you use the? Why would the plastic sheet be good? Okay, you're covering yourself. It's going to collect rainwater. That's going to be your number one reason. I'm not saying it's number one, but that's the Coast Guard's main reason: collect rainwater. How many put down the sextant? You'd say. Why not? If you don't have the maps and you don't have the other stuff, it absolutely does you. It's useless. Okay. The shaving mirror is what? Good or bad? It's good because you need it for reflector system. The, sh- the mirror for shaving is your signaling device. I think, I think it's number one because of that. What else do you, would be in your top group? Fishing kit? Anybody else think fishing kit? Because it's food source. I think chocolate bars because it is one of the most basic essential food items. Okay. Chocolate. Actually, I don't know where it's ranked in here. Shark repellent. Uh, Water. Water's going to be up there. Here's what they did. Here's what they put down for their top ranking per items. And here's why. Number one was the mirror for signaling. Uh, oil and petrol, another signal. Water for the survival. Yeah, just make sure the boat's out of the oil when you burn it. Um, the rations, the plastic sheets for the water, 
See, I told you, chocolate bars are right up there. Okay, especially if they're M&Ms, you know, peanuts. Um, fishing kit was in the top half. The rope, rope because of the storm factor. Uh, floating cushion, shark repellent, bottle of rum, it's there, but transistor radio does no good. By the way, if you do this test with some young people, they're going to say, what's a transistor radio? <laughs> okay. Uh, mosquito netting. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So that gives uh, the, uh, the point is prioritizing things. Nehemiah has got to spot, stop and say, wait a minute. I am building the city. That was my priority. We've got it built. I've got to get it secured. I've got to get population. But he stops everything for a reason. What is so important that he stops his normal duties? Worship. Somebody mentioned worship. Because they come to the point that as they read now in chapter 8, it says, All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before them. They spake to Ezra to bring the book. Okay, it's okay, we've got to spend time. What good does it do if we've built the city for religious purposes and nobody has any religion? Okay, what good is it? So it's like, okay, we have got to talk about it. And Nehemiah knows this. By the way, the people don't fully know it, that the feast days are at hand. But Ezra and Nehemiah know it because they are more proficient with the word. Okay. Now remember, some of the people have, they, they don't remember the calendar. What does that tell you what's happened with the Jews in dispersion? They've lost some of their heritage. They've lost some of their temple focus. They've lost some of that, those feast days. And so Nehemiah, Ezra are going to say, we've got to get back to it. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring out the word of God. We're going to read it. Oh, they didn't say, take out your Bibles and read. Why not? They don't have them. And so they got to do this public reading. They got to pull it out and they got to start reading. Now, when they do it, they find these three feasts are at hand. Just, just again, for your information so you understand this whole story. Um, if, if we these feasts are in this time of the year, okay, just to give you an idea that uh, they, how they spread out in our calendar this year and next year, they're within a, within a period of a few weeks of each other. There are feasts that are single days and then they can spread to full weeks. But it gives you an idea of what time of the year we're talking about. Okay, and so here they are. They're coming to these feasts. And just so you understand, the Feast of Trumpets, okay, was done at the end of the harvest season. It was, uh, it was a special feast that they were supposed to, okay, prepare, get things ready for the next feast. It was a celebration. The, the, the uh, olives, the grapes, those are, that's a big event. By the way, is that still a big event in some cultures? If any, of you, if any of you recall from hearing about the Mount of Olives ministry at the camp ministry, that people by the dozens will go out where there are olive trees and they will harvest the olive trees because that's a big thing in their culture. Okay, they use it. In, uh, in Ireland, what's the big thing? I, we saw this in Romania. What's the big thing that they go out and basically stop everything to go and harvest? It was in the ground... It's potatoes. Okay, and so certain cultures, certain what, what fruit or what vegetable is really important, it really impacts. And for that culture, and by the way, we don't say, oh, it's time for, you know, it's time for the corn harvest. Let's just take off work for a week in America. Why don't we do that? We don't need to because we, uh, we're going to Walmart. Okay. 
we're going to go someplace else. And if we really want it, we're just going to stop by the roadside stand and get it right from, directly from the farmer. And so we're not oriented that way, but they were. And so the Feast of the Trumpets was, okay, celebration time, but announcement that there's more feasts to come. The Feast of Atonement, if you remember this one, this is when they would have the scapegoat and the priest would lay hands on it and he would take away the sins of the people. They haven't all recognized, you're going you're gonna to read as we go through it, they haven't been observing this for, for generations. They've not been observing this. And so this is going to be a real important feast, which if you look at it, this is a feast of repentance and national confession. Do these people have something to confess? Yeah, they do. Now, all the problems that they've had is because of their lack of of repentance. And then you have that major feast called the Feast of Tabernacles that lasts for, you know, 10 uh, 10 to 14 days. And this is the one, the harvest is over. It's a celebration. It's recalling what God did in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings. You don't live and sleep in your normal bed. You make a booth on your backyard, your house, and you sleep outdoors. You camp out for these two weeks, and you're supposed to be celebrating. And by the way, a big part of this feast feast was sharing what you have with others. Huge part of the feast. And so um, they're going to they're gonna have these three feasts. They, they realize we're on the eve of the Feast of Trumpets. We've got to get ready for the next two feasts. That's what's going to happen in chapter 8, 9, and 10. That that they do it. Now, it all starts with Nehemiah recognizing we've got something that we've got to deal with. We've got to expose them to the Word of God. <clears throat> these people need revival spiritually. We've got the building We've rebuilt, but now we've got to rebible these people. And so what he's got to do is make it what, what is so important here. We've got to train them. We've got priests in place who can train, who can teach. We've even got Ezra, who's been here for you know, some 20-odd years. He's going to be able to preach and be able to prophesy. And remember the reasons why it is so important. These people who he's dealing with, a lot of them have close ties with the Gentiles. He's got to show them they have to have loyalty to the Word of God. He knows that these people have been violating Old Testament law for a long time. A lot of the rich people, a lot of the nobles, they've been taking advantage. We already saw that. They've not been living by the Word of God. He's going to have to, or he does realize that they've even had priests working in the temple who are disqualified that shouldn't be working. But they've allowed it because they haven't been fully aware and focusing on the Bible. And some of their religious leaders, remember, they try to bribe him. They try to tell, or they were, they were given to bribery, to tell Nehemiah false reports. So he knows there's a, there's a real problem here. We are out in the ocean, and in this ocean where we are stuck, we, we are shipwrecked spiritually, we need something. What's our most important item? they got to get the Word of God. And the problem here is they don't have it. They don't have the Bible in their hands. The only way that they learn the Bible is somebody teaching them. Well, the facts have been they haven't had people teaching them for a long time. And so they really need to get back. They are Bible ignorant. They are Bible unaware. So he realizes that the thing I need to do is I need to get them exposed to God's word. Why don't we do this? We're ready to do the feasts. Let's read about these feasts and see what the people do. Let's expose them to the word of God. So chapter 8, what he does is he gathers the people together. In chapter 8, they gather at Watergate. Okay? And right away we think of... Okay? Something bad. We think of Nixon and that whole thing. Well, they go to the Watergate, and it starts off, and they say, all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. There's a real focus here on the whole group um, that was before Watergate. They said to Ezra, bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded. Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation. Watch, Watch some phrases here. 
Watch some important phrases. Both of the men and the woman. Okay, what's that say? Okay, they're including how many? Everyone. And he says, all that could hear with understanding. Who's that referring to? Man, woman, children. Okay, uh, upon the first day of the seventh month. He read therein before the street that was before the water gate from when to when. Okay, they're spending quite a bit. Before the men, the women, and those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive unto the book. Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and then it lists 13, 12 or 13 men next to him. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and when he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, uh, the great God, and all the people said, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their heads. They bowed their, heart, their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then it lists out several more men standing next to him. The people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God, distinctly gave the sense, caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the church author, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Interesting, okay? That here he is. This is the important thing. We need to get the Bible out. Who initiates this according to verse 1? The people do. The people want to hear it, okay? So obviously it's been put before them. They're hearing about this, but they realize we need the Word of God. And we've got the people in places. Who's heading it up? Well, we know that it's Ezra, okay, with support of other people. He's got listed several different men that are going to be teaching, some called Levites, some called scribes, that they're going to teach with them. Now remember, he's been there for a number of years in the city, and he's devoted to studying the Word of God. You can read his story, go back, and it talks about him being an individual who read the Word, studied the Word, and gave the Word. And so that was his ministry for a period of time. And so he's got a reputation already of giving out the Word of God and applying it to his own life, and now he's going to be the one that they say, why don't you? And Nehemiah is behind it saying, here, let's get others, let's teach the people. So they get the people together, okay? We understand, you know, this is, this is some behind the scenes things. We understand that there's probably all the people listing, we're probably talking about 50,000 people, okay, that are there from the different quarters when we go to chapter 11 and find out how many are around. So there's a good amount of people no wonder he has these helpers because they're going to have to spread out to do the reading and the explaining of this word. Okay? It includes all the different sorts. This is interesting that the Bible would put this in. Women and children. Remember back in that day, the ladies and the kids were basically not a part of worship. Or they were, the ladies who were a part of worship were a part of immoral worship. And so this is, a, this is something unique about Christianity and Judaism is how they show the respect, how they incorporate the men and the, children, the ladies and children into the worship service. Okay, so you've got all these people. They're going to stand up. They're going to start teaching the Word of God. What happens is this. They read. Now, we don't know exactly what's being read. Many think it's Deuteronomy. Okay, it could be. It could be more than Deuteronomy. We don't know. Okay, and to be dogmatic is, is probably um, a little bit too much. Okay, he starts off with prayer, you know, bless the Lord, Lord bless this thing. Then the people stand out of respect for the Lord. Okay, now this, ha- this is the phrase that's often used by we preachers to say, okay, when we read the word of God, you must stand because they stood in the day of Nehemiah. I have no problem with that, with standing when the word of God is read. However, they did more than just stand. Okay, so when we make an issue to say, okay, in this passage it says that they stood, so you must stand whenever the word of God is preached. If that's the case, if we're going to do that, then let's then let's do the rest of what the verse says as well. Okay, then you have to stand like this, 
okay, then you need to hold your hands up like this, and you need to hold your hands this way. Why? What's the point of holding your hands this way? Okay, I am totally open to God to see me. I'm hiding nothing to God. And that was an important thought that they wrote about. And then as you're reading, you um, then put your faces to the ground as well. Okay, bow down, then stand. Okay, so uh, again, there's nothing wrong with standing. That's not my point. My point is if we're going to be dogmatic to say this is what they did, we've got to do it, then follow through and do the whole things. And so he reads the law from morning until midday, about five or six hours. You already feel like that's how long I preach, okay? And speaking of that, I got to get ready to preach, okay? So time is up. We'll pick up next week.